everyone, it is Stephanie Postles, the host of Up Next in Commerce. Before we get into our latest interview with another e-commerce leader, I wanted to let you know that the Up Next in Commerce podcast is now available for sponsorship for the first time ever. By partnering with us, your company will be connected to interviews with the most compelling founders, CEOs, VPs, and digital leaders in the world of commerce today. You have nothing to gain but thousands of followers and millions of impressions each and every month. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with our team at Up Next in Commerce. Welcome to Up Next in Commerce, the show that takes you to the front lines of what's happening in digital, retail, and beyond, with conversations from fast-growing startups to the Fortune 500 and everything in between. You'll get a glimpse into what's next. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, the co-founder and CEO of Mission.org, and I'll be your guide through all the trends, innovations, and hot topics in the world of commerce. What are business leaders thinking about when they aren't winning a business? Family, travel, the latest TV show? Yes, yes, and maybe. But how about quirky business opportunities or little discussed financial trends, or maybe even plant medicine benefits and alternative wellness? Mission Daily is back, baby, and our flagship podcast is better than ever. Mission Daily is the podcast for the business builder, the thoughtful marketer, the team manager, the blue-collar worker looking for new ways to think about life, finances, and health. This is for the people who want to break the status quo and laugh a little or a lot along the way. Join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we address the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't often talk about. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Today, I'm talking to Michael Affronti, the Senior Vice President and General Manager of Payments and Messaging at Salesforce. Michael is a seasoned senior product executive, advisor, investor, and board member with more than 18 years of experience building and leading high-performing organizations from incubation to a billion dollars plus in revenue. Yes, that was a billion dollars. Prior to Salesforce, he's worked at places like Data Miner, Fuse, Microsoft, and he even spent some time DJing in his past life. (laughs) Michael, welcome to the show. Good to see you. Thanks a lot. Nice to be here. You like that little final edition? I'm like, come on, this shows who this man is. We have to. I, I didn't see it coming. Uh, the question you can ask if you want is my DJ name, and I will absolutely tell it to you. Oh, yes. Let's start there. Okay. DJ name. And do you still DJ? Or when was the last time? Yeah. So my DJ name uh, back in the day was DJ Flash. Actually, my mom gave me that name just for you, uh-huh. if you want to be, really be honest. Yeah. I was, uh, I love running and I was quite fast when I was a kid. So that, that just stuck. But started out doing weddings and bar mitzvahs and ended up doing a bunch of nightclubs and stuff for a while and definitely turned in my tables when I took the professional career route after college. But every once in a while, someone will convince me to DJ at a party and I, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll put down a couple of tracks if I can. Oh, that's cool. You better be careful. I feel like Salesforce, if they learn about that, they're going to be like, all right, Michael, you need to come over here and maybe go to Dreamforce <laughs> and support these initiatives we need. I don't know. Maybe be a little careful telling people about these skills. You know, I, I worried about that a little bit when I first got here and then realized that is Salesforce gets people like Will I Am and yes. other folks. So I was like, right, I think they'll go, at, they'll go ask the, <laughs> the hype haters. Yeah. Uh, I guess so. So today I'm really excited because we are going to be talking all about payments, messaging. I mean, these are two topics that I feel like I get to touch on a little bit here and there throughout the episodes that I do, but I've never really been able to dive deep. So I first want to tell the audience a bit about, you know, why do you care so much about this space? Why did you get into this world? How did you get into it? Yeah, great way to start. 
So I've been building products uh, in the B2B space uh, since I left college and joined Microsoft. And I've always personally been fascinated by technologies that help people do what they need to do for their jobs better, faster, simpler, easier, so they can be more productive, grow their businesses, and kind of ultimately get done with their day faster and go enjoy their life, right? And I think uh, over the years, I've had the opportunity to work on a number of different technologies, starting with at Microsoft, all of this collaboration technology that was really centered around how are people communicating with each other? And I spent a lot of time thinking about how do we optimize that? How do we make it easier and faster to collaborate and then make that something that is more natural? And then over the years, uh, especially after I left Microsoft and worked in startups, uh, you know, you end up having to build a lot more underlying back office technology than you sort of have available when you're working at a larger, more established technology company. So at all the companies I worked at, you know, we had to do things like integrate payments technology to accept payments for the products or services we were selling, how to communicate with our customers, whether it be uh, for an outage or all the way from a new service announcement. So I ended up having to learn these technologies and platforms as part of helping to deliver the other products and services that I've been fortunate to build. And through that, uh, I would say the last 10 years of my career, sort of this love affair has started with thinking about uh, the evolution of payments and messaging I'm somewhat independently, but now very much, you know, uh, in the same headspace of how are they transforming how people are, you know, operating both at work and in their personal lives. Um, so yeah, I think now I'm at a place where I'm very fortunate and feel super excited every day to be at a company like Salesforce, where we get to do things with these technologies that can help transform the way businesses operate and goes back to that original mission I have, which is just help people do the things they want to do better and faster. Mm -hmm. Got it. And throughout that time, you also were just busy getting some patents. What patents do you have and what space are they in? Oh, wow. Patents. Um, that's like going into the Wayback Machine sometimes because those are, those are, you know, they're so such a long arc. Um, all the patents that uh, I have filed, uh, I think 90, I would call it 90% of them are all from when I was at Microsoft and all have to do um, both the ones that were granted and the ones that were, uh, that are still pending have to do with collaboration technology broadly. How can we do things like improve the efficiency of accessing large sets of email, which was when I was working on Outlook. Um, some of them have to do with search. This is, again, pretty long time ago. Search was actually a really hard and computationally expensive thing to do um, way before Google, even just on your local machine. So some of the patents are in that space of search. And then there's another whole set that are around workflows for communicating with other people. For a, a period of time, I was really interested in the messaging space on how can we do things to get signals from people. So if you and I are having a conversation um, and perhaps you're actually actively talking, is that a signal that we could put into your presence so that others who are looking to potentially communicate with you can be more informed about how you want to be communicated with? So some of the patents are in this space of trying to understand people better from the signals they give off to make it easier for others to interact with them, which, um, you know, candidly, you know, was pretty ahead of its time as the team and I thought about it. But now you fast forward to a, you know, a hybrid and sometimes mostly remote work uh, setup. And I feel like that level of personalization and adaptive uh, interfaces is now even more important because of the way we all communicate. Yep. Wow. I mean, that's when you know you're deep in this space, when you have patents and patents that you're, you were a little too early for, where now it's like people definitely need that. I mean, I remember even working back in offices in the Bay Area and they would have little signs you'd put outside your, you know, workspace that would show how to interact with you. Like, here's the kind of color I am and here's the best way. Like, don't come and tap me on the shoulder, ping me on Slack instead. And 
but yet yeah, now that's even more relevant than ever before, I'm sure. So, hundred percent, yeah. I, one, you know, one thing uh, whenever I join a new team and uh, that I ask my team to do, and then I do the same, is just write down how you want to be communicated with. And it's this interesting experience I always have where most folks go, "Oh, I have." I guess I never really wrote that down before. Well, I would prefer you text me if you need me. And that when you actually write it down, it's not too like odd to look at. And I find that it's actually super empowering um, to make it really easy for folks to understand what are the best ways to communicate with you, not just working hours. That's sort of the easy one. It's more about those subtle things of like, actually, email is not a really efficient way to get in touch with me. I'd prefer Slack in the evening, text me, etc. So a lot of the work I did in those early days was around um, how could we be smarter about that, which, uh, you know, again, I think now is becoming a lot more mainstream as folks are letting technology do some of that for them. Yep. Yep. All right. So today's conversation, I want to kind of break it into, you know, first starting with, well, we'll put messaging at the end. We'll first start with payments. And I want to hear, I mean, if I'm a business owner and I'm thinking like, you know, US mindset, of course, it's like a different kind of thinking here. I'm like, what do I need to solve in payments? I've got all the things I need around me. Like, what could I possibly improve in this area? It's probably something that a lot of business owners don't always think of. Like, that's not top of mind. So tell me, like, what are the problems in the space that you're trying to solve right now? Or what are areas that maybe business owners don't even know that they need to be, like, looking into? Oh, great way to start talking about payments. And I, I'd like to think about it. If we had a whiteboard, uh, I would start drawing some concentric circles around each other. The smallest one would be, you know, a U.S., a customer, a U.S. merchant who's got a mostly U.S. business, doesn't really sell internationally, and is wondering, should I be thinking about payments right now? And especially if they're exploring, you know, making a change to their e-commerce offering, like if they're coming over to Salesforce's Commerce Cloud. Traditionally, they just haven't, you know, and if they've been an established business for any period of time, they probably have a, an existing relationship with a payment processor. Um, and it's just been something where there's a transaction fee, it gets paid, there's someone in accounting who understands how to pay that processor, and it's sort of out of sight, out of mind. What we have seen, I would say, at the global level, all the way down to that tiny circle that we just started with, is payments has now shifted, especially because of COVID, from that back office, out of mind, out of sight technology to the, whoa, this is something that we need to start thinking about more strategically. And I think the real question that you're asking is what's driving that curiosity or that feeling? And I think that could be summed up as there's a lot more ways for people to pay for things. And if you don't have a, a payment setup that allows you to react quickly to the you know, increase in payment methods that get turned on every quarter around the world that um, your customers are demanding, um, then you can actually be quite challenged with growing, um, even if you have the rest of the technology stack all set up and buttoned up. Because payments, again, is something where if you don't have the payment method that I want, but you have the product, there's a higher chance than ever that I may not buy it. And that's a real bad thing. So that's where merchants, I think, just zoom in on is, like, whoa, this is something that now impacts conversion. Let's talk about it. Mm -hmm. Do you have any stats of like how many sales are maybe missed because the merchants don't have this frictionless way to be able to accept any form of payment, whether that's maybe someone just wants to text you to be able to do it or scan a QR code or whatever the you know new emerging form is? How much like sales do you think could be lost because of not having a frictionless experience with that? I am blanking on the exact okay. stat, but the stat that I can get you afterwards is there's a much larger than most merchants realize percentage of conversion that will drop if the customer's preferred payment method isn't there. And it's one of those stats where whenever we talk to customers about it, their eyes open and they go, that can't be the case. And then you sort of just ask them almost reflexively, 
well, what if you were trying to buy something on your iPhone and they didn't have Apple Pay? What would you do? And you're like, oh, I, I guess I wouldn't really want to go find my credit card. And it's like, that's exactly it, right? So if that happens at scale, you're talking about double percentage points of potentially lost conversion, all from just not having the payment method available. Yep. Yeah, we can add that stat in the show notes for everyone who is just dying to hear what that percentage <laughs> is. It'll be in our show notes. Great. It kind of reminds me of Amex. <laughs> like Amex is just not accepted everywhere. And sometimes like when I go to Costco and I'm like, I don't know who I'm more mad at, Amex or Costco, one of you guys, but like I'm ready just to kind of walk out. Yeah, I can see how quickly you would lose a sale just because of one experience like that of being like, wait, you don't accept the thing that I have or that I'm used to using. But I still don't know which one I'm mad at, though. That's my problem. Am I mad at Costco or Amex right now? <laughs> Unclear. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's hard to pick, but I, I feel the same thing. As a consumer, you know, I've got my preferred credit cards. Um, I, feel, I feel it personally when I travel internationally a lot, right? Amex is not accepted everywhere as much as, uh, you know, Visa, MasterCard, and some of the other um, banking cards. And, you know, certainly as a consumer, it means I have to physically carry two cards. Thankfully, in, in most international locations now, you know, POS devices allow you to pay with your iPhone or, or Android phone. But even then, you have to make sure you have both cards in the digital wallet because you can't always pay with one. Like that's going to be inherent for a long time. And again, as a merchant, you don't want to be the one, especially on a crowded street, potentially, um, that doesn't have the preferred payment methods because that actually could potentially be something that drives away customers. Mm -hmm. I'm just reading this book called The Innovation Stack by James McKelvey. Okay, he's like the co-founder of Square. He came on the podcast. So of course, I was like, okay, I'll read your book. And he was just like a really interesting character when he came on. But I'm thinking about this pyramid that he has in his book where it essentially shows how merchants are impacted by like credit card companies too. And it shows like, essentially the smallest entrepreneurs, not even like an SMB. It's like the ones who are just trying to get off the ground or the ones who are like hit hardest when it comes to accepting payments. How do you think about this when it comes to like encouraging these new entrepreneurs, trying to, you know, get more people to be starting businesses while also knowing that like credit cards are maybe hurting those people or it's like they're the ones who incur the highest fees. And whereas like the biggest companies, of course, get the best discounts and rates and all of that. Yeah, that's a complicated topic, I would say, mostly because it's so interestingly geographically nuanced. What I mean by that is, you know, you look at some of the, you know, very, very small companies that are starting up, uh, you know, around the world, and it really depends on what financial infrastructure is in place around them to allow them to, you know, accelerate through their early stages of growth if accepting payments is a critical part of their online flow, for example. You know, when you look at some of the advancements happening outside the U.S., uh, with things like open banking and some of the embedded finance platforms that I think are really helping companies transform the way they think about accepting payments, both big and small. I think the U.S. is also starting to accelerate through that. You know, there's a lot of interesting initiatives mirroring what's happening outside the U.S. to help accelerate that you know, cross-banking and all of the other things that potentially could get in the way of a small merchant looking to accept uh, payments. Mm -hmm. So now that you mentioned it, like around the world, I know you are well-traveled, you get to probably experience like what things look like outside of the US. What are some trends that you're seeing right now that maybe are kind of leapfrogging what we're experiencing here in the US when it comes to payments? Or like, what do you think is maybe going to be coming to us in the next couple of years? Yeah. Uh, one thing I personally experience and, and just love as a consumer, you know, and I was mentioning to you when we got, uh, before we got started rather, that I was recently in Brazil um, on a work trip, meeting some of our wonderful customers and some of our local teams. And every single thing I did, uh, I was able to pay for with my iPhone using tap to pay everywhere. I never used cash. 
And that was the smallest merchants that I would buy just a bottle of water on the street all the way through the restaurants that we ate at in the evenings. And I think that experience, this purely digital experience, while um, not necessarily ubiquitous, is something that you certainly see way more end-to-end as a consumer internationally than I think you see in the U.S. Um, But at the same time, um, very optimistically, look at what transformations happened over the last two years. And the you know recognition I always give is my wife and I love to go down the street where we live in Brooklyn to a, there's this avenue called Fulton Street, where it has a bunch of restaurants and bars that we love to hang out at. And you know before COVID, most of them you paid with a credit card and they took it behind the, you know, the bar or the front desk and they came back. And since COVID, um, almost every one of them has a QR code on the table. You can pay with one of the many point of sale seamless transition apps. Um, and increasingly, a lot of them are carrying the holster-based POS devices like they do in Europe. So I think that trend as a consumer of, of expecting a seamless cashless experience, if that's what's appropriate for you, um, is something that definitely started outside the U.S. faster, but is now starting to happen, I think, uh, everywhere, which, again, personally, I think is awesome because it's more convenient. But again, I think it also gives merchants a lot more um, leeway and leverage and also safety because it reduces fraud and uh, helps them understand their customers better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm by implementing that, to me, that's like the best way to start actually being able to personalize things to your customer, being able to get any kind of data. Because I always think, I'm like, right now, a lot of these credit card companies have all the data, but then how can these merchants get data? And how would you advise companies, you know, who are maybe moving into this space right now to be able to think about being able to serve their customer in a more personalized way, getting like good data? Yeah, that's exactly what we talk to a lot of the merchants from the Salesforce perspective about, which is payments is in service of what, right? And I think as we started our chat with today, typically for a merchant, it starts with, well, I want to make sure I'm getting all the conversion that I could possibly get. So do I have all of the payment methods that I need, especially if I operate multinationally, right? Do I have all of the buy now, pay leaders that seem to be very popular, right? Do I even know which ones my customers are, are looking for? So I think that's the start. I think the second thing that merchants start to think about is, oh, well, now if I'm moving to a more seamless digital experience for accepting those payments, whether it be online or in a physical point of sale device, like at a restaurant or a retail location, well, now that I'm interacting with them that way, what information can I glean from that? And obviously, those are things like, oh, Michael likes to pay with Afterpay most of the time. That's interesting. Perhaps we can offer him a higher value product along with the Afterpay as the preferred method the next time he comes to the site because a high value product with a buy now, pay later experience may have a higher conversion. I can go test that out. And on the other side, um, once you're done paying with a digital experience, like I have with my iPhone and paying off those QR codes at a restaurant, it's an opportunity to have a very quick dialogue with the customer using your app or your website, asking a couple of questions about their preferences that can then be stored on their user profile, which then the next time they come to your establishment online or in person, you can use to personalize their experience. So it's that twofold of get the right payment methods in front of them, optimize the products you're exposing them to, and then think about what you can do with the you know, sort of post-purchase conversation, especially given that they're going digital to pay for it in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that seems like a great place to be. Why would a merchant maybe not want to do this? Like, what kind of pushback do you hear when you're like, look at all these amazing things that you could be doing, like digital everything? Or like, why would anyone not be doing that right now? I think it's a number of things that can, uh, depending on the type of business, you know, to start, a lot of folks don't have payments expertise in house, you know, it's something that they've never had to, or maybe there's one or two people who know how their payments platform that they use works with their e-commerce offering or works with their point of sale system. 
So thinking about it as a transformative technology means they have to think about, well, do we have the right skills and people and technology to actually go get the outcome we want, which is make sure we drive conversion or make sure we drive customer loyalty. So I think it starts with people and skills. Um, that second piece is, do they have the technology in place? If they have a very well-established, but potentially very you know old um, payments infrastructure, that could be something holding them back, even if they know what they want to go do. Um, and again, that that comes down to like, what is their impetus for change? And are they going to put the resources behind it to set themselves up to be more agile? You know, fraud is a very big topic in payments, of course. And in general, uh, when we talk to our merchants that after conversion, I think fraud is probably the next big bucket of things we talk about. And that can be another inhibitor to them wanting to move forward. Fraud is really hard to protect against, right? And as you add more payment methods, you are inherently increasing sort of your uh, your surface area, which means more people will potentially come to your site, which means more people will try to pay using these different payment methods. So what is your fraud profile going into that? How are you managing it? Are you thinking about it as a business process? Are you thinking about it as a uh, back office process? And that whole conversation, I know with a lot of customers can be almost overwhelming if they're not deeply thinking about it, which is something that traditionally you just haven't had to do. Hey there, are you enjoying the show so far? Well, imagine your company's advertising placed right in this very spot during a future interview with another elite e-commerce mind. Imagine your messaging and logo directly connected to the industry's most prominent innovators and thought leaders, distributed across every major podcast platform and social network. Yeah, well, it's time to stop imagining. Learn how you can partner with Upnext in Commerce and sponsor this very show. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org and let's have a conversation. I mean, when it comes to fraud, that is such a big topic. But as a merchant, like what kind of tools or how should I be monitoring that? I mean, I'm just thinking like that's something you really need to be looking at probably every time you're getting a purchase, like you should know what's happening. But then that also feels a little like overwhelming. So what tools or how should I think about managing that when I'm moving more into this digital space, knowing I'm going to have a lot more traction digitally and maybe a little bit more risk? Like how, do, how should a merchant think about that? Yeah, uh, that's where AI comes in. And I uh, was waiting to see how long it took for me to say the word AI. You did good. Yeah, thank, thank, you, thank you. Yeah, this is the longest I've held out all week in an hour conversation. That's where AI comes in. Um, this is absolutely a big data problem. And I think something that uh, traditionally has been very rules-based, which still have a big part to play, right? Only a merchant and the people that work there know about their business inherently enough to actually go and say, okay, well, these are patterns that we want to allow because of the configuration of the things that we sell in terms of you know the purchase patterns and purchase prices and whatnot. So traditionally, building a set of rules, like if this, then that, let the transaction through or not. But the scale has changed so dramatically that you know you'd be easily outnumbered and outpowered just by the amount of transactions going through the average site. So that's where AI comes in. With Salesforce Payments as an example, you know we uh, deeply lean on our partnership with Stripe, the incredible technology that they've built that allows them to use AI at scale to actually help drive uh, down fraud and allow through the correct purchases by applying a much bigger corpus of trained information than you could on your own. And I think that that's something where. Uh, that combination of rules-based from the business owners and AI-based to look at the data at scale, that is that combination that I think really helps merchants because they um, they get the most leverage out of it. Mm, that's good. I mean, I, I think there's so many opportunities around having data from like, I mean, just like what Stripe is doing, like from multiple companies being able to see patterns. Oftentimes you just see 
you know, companies just trying to look at their own data and their own patterns. And it's like, mm, that's probably not the best way to look at it when you could have the whole market's data, or at least, you know, all of Stripe's customers, you can look into that. But there, there seems to be a lot of opportunity in those kind of like pockets of grouping up large sums of data and letting people kind of be partners in a way to be able to solve a larger problem that would be really hard to solve on your own. That's right. That's right. And, and also being able to do it with a partner, um, with a technology company, I should say, that respects the privacy needs of making that work, right? Which I think goes without saying, especially given how important this is, but it isn't a question that comes up. Well, we want the best possible fraud protection, but how do we not let our data get commingled in a way that is you know, dangerous, et cetera? And those doing that well is also another part of the fraud experience. But again, something that I think uh, merchants are increasingly thinking about. Okay. So, you know, I wanted to go here before we go into messaging. I do want to hear your thoughts. It can be personal Michael's thoughts on crypto when it comes to payments. I mean, especially like you see all this movement in, you know, other countries like around the world, you see some trying to implement like Bitcoin is our currency and then that didn't work so well. And there's probably so many reasons on why that did not. Uh, Many thoughts on that one. But I want to hear, like, what are your thoughts when it comes to crypto in like the long term? Because right now we're on a roller coaster. Sometimes people are excited. <laughs> right now they're probably not drama everywhere. But like, what do you think when it comes to like the long term of how that could come into play? Uh, yeah, yeah. So what, what a good topic. My personal perspective, uh, very much so. Um, I've been a crypto enthusiast a couple of years now, um, and I've you know I've watched it from two angles, right? As a consumer and someone just interested in the technology underpinning crypto blockchain and a few other layers of the stack. Um, and then looking at it from the Web3 perspective and what brands are doing in terms of driving loyalty and how that's a mix of like actual cryptocurrencies and as well as the blockchain technology. And then the third piece is, you know, operating payments at Salesforce, listening to what our customers are saying and looking at that demand and trying to understand is there something that we could be building to help support them. Um, so as a personal uh, technologist, I would say I'm extremely bullish on crypto because of the underlying technology and what that could do for some areas of things like authoritative ownership of a document or a house or something like that, ways that blockchain could help transform that, um, where crypto is driving the technology generation that actually could go and affect large-scale application of blockchain. The second piece is crypto as an actual currency. That part, I'm personally, again, a little bit like less bullish on right now, because I'm, I'm not sure folks have figured out what the value is versus using a fiat currency, uh, you know, for most of the transactions that are happening on the on most of the sites and most of the brands that we all interact with today. The last piece, you know, when I think about what our customers are asking us, um, they they ask us very much, hey, um, what should we be doing with crypto? If the customer has a heavy Web3 presence, if they're, you know, in the metaverse in any material way, or if they have digital twins, or they're doing something where they're using you know, a digital companion to a physical experience, um, typically driving loyalty. That's the the cohort of customers where I, I have the most conversation about what role crypto could play because most people are expecting to, to buy and pay for those things with crypto. So uh, that's sort of the landscape of how I see it. Personally, very excited about the underlying technology. Customers are still sort of putting their toe in the water depending on their angle of sort of approach. And I think in the middle, like crypto as a currency, I think is something we're watching. Uh, and certainly talking, you know, talking to our partners about. Yep. Yeah, I agree with those themes. I think yeah, blockchain is like right now, it's kind of like the technology behind the scenes that a lot of people are looking into. And there's a lot of like tech companies building really cool things that I think will 
get implemented that the consumer or even the merchant actually won't even have to care what's behind the scenes. I mean, you see, like, I think there's like 65% of banks right now said they're interested in looking into blockchain. I mean, they call it crypto, but it's probably blockchain that they're looking into. And I mean, that's when you know technology is good when it like disappears and you don't even know what's driving, you know, whatever's happening on the front like user interface. Totally. I have a crossover for you. Wait for this. So uh, between payments and messaging, uh, Uh specifically with blockchain, um, you know, one of the things I find fascinating about blockchain technology, just like you said, is how it can be invisible use to help transform experiences. So within uh, the telecommunications market, spam is a really big deal, right? How many SMS do you get that are spam or phishing today, which is a really big problem? India has taken a really interesting approach where they have essentially launched the very large um, distributed ledger or blockchain that interfaces with the SMS uh, system in India to basically eliminate spam going to mobile handsets. And the way it works is it treats uh, inbound messages going through the networks as a verification process. And that verification process uses a blockchain. So you would never know it unless someone told you. But the reason that spam is mostly has mostly been made non-existent in India is because they use the blockchain. And I think that's pretty cool. That's amazing. See, we need to study more things like that and just share that knowledge. I mean, actually, India has a lot of cool things that they're doing. I mean, they have a whole like kind of like a, a book of how their whole economy is like being driven. And one time I went through and I started reading it and it was like really interesting how they think about like force and power and like when the government should intervene. And anyways, that's a side tangent, but they're doing a lot of cool things I think people are not paying attention to. I'm like, why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we tapping into blockchain? Because I don't want any more spam. So this needs to come my way. (laughs) All right, now let's shift over to messaging. Um, What are you doing in this space? I mean, I saw a partnership with or something happening with WhatsApp. Um, which looked really cool because I'm like, that is what everyone is using. And that to me is turning into this super app that I think people here in the US don't even fully understand how it's like tapped into everywhere. But tell me, what are you, yeah, what's your role in messaging right now? Yeah, such an interesting space. Um, so I've been involved with messaging at Salesforce for uh, almost a year now. My responsibility is to help deliver all the technology that lets our customers um, send SMS, uh, emails, push notifications, WhatsApp messages. Uh, pretty much any way they want to do an outbound communication to our customers. Think uh, almost any promotion you get from a retail brand that you love. Those are all coming through the plumbing that my team um, is responsible for. And you know, a, a big part of my background in the technology industry has been thinking about collaboration, communications, and technology and the technology underpinning it. Um, spent a bit of time working in the telecommunications space at a startup where I got to get exposed to what I would call like the like the lowest depths of telecommunication, the L1 and L2 layers where you're talking about interfacing with carriers and dealing with SMS short and long codes. And what I get to do now at Salesforce is uh, think about that in addition to how it fits into things like omni-channel messaging journeys. So the idea that we send you a promotion uh, on behalf of one of our customers, and then you acknowledge that promotion and perhaps have a question, the actual orchestration of how the company communicates back to you the journey, the bots, um, that's, you know, sort of sits above my team. And we work really closely to make sure that you as a consumer have a delightful experience on any channel that you prefer. Mm, Okay. So what makes a good experience when it comes to messaging? Because these people are probably not using Salesforce, but I get some messages where I'm like, stop telling me about 10% off. I do not care, world market. Uh, Just keep (laughs) going. And so like, how do you actually make sure you set up a good experience for the end consumer that you know, is also new and different. I mean, I feel like we're moving into this like, yeah, such a different 
year coming up here where people really want different things. Like if you're going to keep doing what you've been doing the last five years, it probably will not work anymore. So like how should brands be thinking about creating a good messaging strategy? Or what have you seen that works? Yeah, the personalization is key here, right? Um, we, we like to say the right channel at the right time um, for the right person. Meaning, you know, you may be absolutely ready in your brain to go and purchase something from some company, and they may actually be able to promote to you that product. But if it's not on the right channel at the right time, like it can actually have a negative effect on you because you may be like, oh, you're sending me another SMS right now. I don't, I don't want this stupid thing that I left in my cart. But statistically, if we sent it to you on the channel that you actually prefer, maybe you prefer email, maybe you like prefer WhatsApp there's a higher conversion rate. So isn't that delightful for the merchant and you as the consumer have a much more pleasant experience. So what I think a lot about is working with our AI teams like our Einstein group and a number of other technology platforms like Genie to figure out how do we get you the right message on the right channel at the right time. And that's really, uh, I think the key for merchants is thinking about how they optimize their systems to do that. Okay. So case study me. How would you figure out like what platform I like or like what kind of questions or things would you do to figure out like where does one talk to Stephanie at? Yeah. uh, This goes, think about what happens to you rather as a consumer, right? When you interact with a brand for the first time, let's say that you are on Instagram, an ad pops up for a thing you're interested in, you swipe up, you end up going to their site, you start poking around and maybe you buy something. Post-purchase, very common opportunity to understand preference of a customer. Hey, thanks for putting in your email to receive your order updates. Are you interested in receiving communications on email? No, I always check no because I'm so flooded with email, it's not useful. But if I care about the brand, I'll check, send me an SMS and I'll put my text number in. So Stephanie, if you do that, immediately I have a signal as a merchant that, okay, well, you prefer SMS and you've given me your phone number. So now what I'm probably going to do is start a campaign automatically that sends you something at some predetermined time to see if that channel is really good for you. Maybe I send you a follow-up coupon or an add-on to the thing that you bought. And if we have a positive conversion over that SMS, that's another signal that we can say, oh, Stephanie also seems to like getting these SMSs and maybe we can try more. But if you say stop and you like actually end the SMS conversation, that could be a down signal. And maybe we send you something over email to try that out. So the way I think about it from the merchant side is we should be interacting with you to help understand your preference. And then basically checking that through um, the way that we want you to potentially buy things with us to ultimately make sure you have a great experience. Mm -hmm. Got it. I always sometimes think it'd be nice if it was a little more interactive. There's this new tool. I don't know if you've heard of it. I think it's called like character.beta.ai. Have you heard of this? Mm-hmm. Oh, you have. Okay. You're like, I already know stuff. I'm ahead of that game. Well, when you interact with something like that, and for anyone who's listening, is like, what are you talking about? I mean, it's basically like you can create a character on there and then they talk in that character's voice. So you can pick Elon Musk or Socrates or whoever you want or Michael, and it'll sound like them and they'll have responses. It's all AI driven. Sometimes I'm like, that would be nice from a merchant. I mean, when I think about Wendy's, like Wendy's has this crazy persona on Twitter. They're like ruthless. They don't care. Interacting with them in that format in text that would actually be delightful and funny and like make it a little bit more of a back and forth that would probably give the brand more information too while I'm interacting with them, but just make it more engaging versus just like, here's your update. What do you think about that? Like kind of, I mean, kind of it's creating bots, I guess, that are actually fun to play with. I think it's very cool. Um, and the reason I think it's cool is because when we get, we just talked about personalization, right? This is, it's both sides, right? It's personalization in terms of what do you as Stephanie want to experience on the channels and the types of messages and the types of promotions. 
but also what is the, the sort of persona of the brand that you're looking to interact with, right? And how do you actually want to have that? And this, you know, goes, I think, really nicely with some of the work that we're doing with uh, Meta and WhatsApp, because WhatsApp is inherently conversational, right? I mean, I use it uh, almost every day to talk to my friends and my family that live outside the U.S., um, given that, you know, iPhones are really um, popular here, but it's conversational in nature. So if you're interacting with a brand over WhatsApp, do you necessarily want it to be something that is very sort of um, stale and stodgy, or do you want it to be something that feels like you're talking to something or someone that you trust, right? Which is inherently where a lot of brands that we talk to are having success, where they set up a dedicated WhatsApp number that is their bot, for example, and that bot has a persona. It could answer in some pithy ways if you ask it a question that doesn't make sense. Um, but in general, it feels like a really personal extension of the brand on a channel that is inherently already very personal for them. Mm-hmm. Yep. I love that. All right, everyone. Michael and I just gave you an excellent idea. If you want to implement it, let us know. <laughs> All right. Well, I know we're coming up on time here. I want to he- ask one last question around big, hairy, audacious projects you're working on that you're like, I don't know if this project's going to work out, but I'm super excited about whatever it may be. So tell us something. And it could be like a long-term project too. Ooh, um, that's a good one. Things that I can share that I'm also very excited about. Um, yeah, I would say, and I'll no, I'll lean into the the WhatsApp um, partnership that we just announced because it, it's a really big deal, and I'm so excited about it. Um, I think that we are at the beginning of a really big transformation with the way that customers engage with their customers, the way that the brands you like, Stephanie, interact with you, for example. And I think there's a number of technologies that are coming to bear there, but. Uh, the one that excites me the most is this idea of conversations, this idea that by moving to channels that are inherently conversational and also respecting those channels, right, not spamming you too much on them, but actually appropriately communicating with you on them, which is inherently personalized communication, I think we're we're going to see uh, pretty large shifts in the way that brands communicate with their customers, um, especially in the U.S., because we have been a little bit slower to adopt some of the more conversational methods of promotion. But now that that's starting to take hold and we can observe what's happening in the rest of the world with WhatsApp, I think there's some really exciting stuff happening. The reason I get really excited about it is because for the brands we work with, I think there's some transformational opportunities. And on the other side, for some of the startups and for some of the small businesses, um, you know, my family owning a small business themselves, um, the inclusivity that can happen by not having to necessarily you know, stand up of an entire experience across all these different services and instead use the channel that you communicate on already with your friends and family and now your vendors and your customers. Um, I think that's really exciting. It could be a really big game changer for folks. Mm-hmm. Amazing. I love that. All right. Well, Michael, this has been super fun. Thanks for hopping on the show. Where can our listeners, our viewers, everyone find out more about you and what you're up to at Salesforce? Stephanie, likewise, it's been fantastic. What a great conversation. I wish we had a few more hours to just kind of knock it around. I know. Um, perhaps a follow-up. Um, yeah, my, my LinkedIn profile, sort of my center of gravity online. I'm happy to share the link afterwards. Um, folks can check there, reach out to me if they have any thoughts or questions. I love just having uh, open and, and new conversations with folks that are in the space and are interested in, in riffing on this stuff. So thank you for the opportunity. Awesome. Thank you. listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.
Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.